All right, so 1 Timothy is all about, the whole letter is about how to get the church back to faithfulness to Jesus. We saw at the beginning of the letter, clearly taught that uh, Paul's writing to Timothy because the church in Ephesus had veered away, not just, uh, not just drifted away, but actually swerved away from the message of the gospel, had added to it, and it had basically made it about what we do to be saved and not about what Jesus has done to save us. Paul gets in there with Timothy and says, listen, you got to fix this thing. Um, and so that's what most of this letter is. It's, a, it's basically showing the church how to be a faithful church. Um, and so we've talked a lot about, uh, we've kind of ping-ponged around here. Like we've, we've talked about the importance of doctrine, and we've also talked some about the importance of, of practicing that doctrine, living in light of that. Uh, what we refer to it as in our church is gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. Uh, so what we believe about Jesus should lead to how we live uh, with one another and in light of his grace. And that's really what chapter 5 is going to get us to, is this culture of, of the church and how the church can actually live and love people through the gospel. Uh, so, so that's what we're going to look at today. It's going to be very, um, it's actually a really interesting chapter. There's a lot here. We've got probably enough for three or four different sermons in this chapter, but we're going to work through it as quick as we can here. Um, but listen, it's, it's an amazing passage because it shows us what the, what the heart of the church should be for other people, right? So our, our vision statement here or whatever, our mission statement, whatever you'd say, when you go to our homepage on, on the website, you see three things, love Jesus, love people, and help people love Jesus, that's why we exist as a church, to love Jesus, love people, and help people love Jesus. So loving Jesus leads to loving people, and loving people should lead ultimately to helping other people love him. And uh, that's the whole goal. That's the whole thing. We didn't invent that. That's pretty much straight out of Jesus. So we, we're just trying to do that. And what you see throughout the New Testament letters, uh, throughout most of the New Testament, is really how that actually works itself out. How do you love the Lord through right theology, right doctrine, right belief? How do we then practice that with one another in how we love each other? And then how does that lead us to help others love Jesus? So that's what we're seeing. And, and today we're really going to focus on this issue of loving people. And how does the church actually care for people? How do we care for people specifically? And so we're, we're going to see uh, in the first two verses kind of the big overview of that, the, the main principle. And then Paul's going to go from the big picture, kind of the 100-foot view, down to the ground and, and actually call out several groups of people and how we can help and serve those groups. So it's kind of an interesting passage. He gets really specific, maybe a little bit too specific at times. It might feel a little overwhelming. Um, but we'll do our best to look at all this. So, so let's look at the first two verses because here's the big picture overview. Here's what he says. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. All right, so, there, so here's the, the big picture of how we care for everyone in the church. Just on a, on a general level, generally speaking, we're going to get into some specifics in a moment. But 
here's the big picture. Um, look at what he says. Do not rebuke, but encourage. So he goes through this and he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. And then he says, as you would a father. And then he says, younger men as brothers. But the, what he's saying here is he's not moving on to a different topic. He's saying, so don't rebuke a younger man, but encourage him as you would a brother. And then he goes to older women and says, if in, in that context, don't rebuke an older woman, but encourage her as you would a mother. Don't rebuke a younger woman, but encourage her as you would a sister in all purity. And so that's the theme, right? This idea of don't rebuke, but encourage. Um, let's talk about that for a little bit. That needs to be unpacked, I think. Um, what Paul is simply saying is, is that encouraging is better than rebuking. But let's, let's think about this, because doesn't the Bible say we should rebuke one another? No, actually it doesn't. It never says that. It's interesting that the only time the word rebuke is used in the New Testament, it's used four or five different times. One of those times is when Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. Okay, so that's Jesus is telling the wind and the waves to stop causing a storm. Um, the only other times it's used in the whole New Testament is in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, which is interesting because all of these letters are what are referred to as the pastoral letters. They're written to individual leaders in the church to lead their church. But as you look at how Paul uses this word rebuke in this passage, uh, we're actually going to see this word come up again in chapter 5. Uh, he uses it again in uh, 2 Timothy. He uses it again in Titus. So of these three or four times this word is used in Paul's letters, it is virtually, there might be one exception to this, but virtually entirely, three out of four times, Paul uses it to refer to uh, correcting a false teacher. So, so a, a leader, a pastor, uh, an elder in the church who's teaching false doctrine needs to be rebuked. That's true. There is a time and a place for strong correction. In fact, the word rebuke, when you look at that word uh, in the original language, it, it can also be translated to strike at somebody. And so for leaders in the church, there is a higher standard that you can't lead people in a false gospel. So yeah, there may need to be a time where you strike at that and you nip it in the bud and you deal with it and you, you rebuke that person. In fact, that's going to be the context we see it used in, in later in this chapter. And three out of four, at least of those times, I think the, the time he uses it in Titus, you could maybe argue that that's not what he's saying. But I think as I studied it in its context, I think that is what he's saying, actually. Um, but that, that's neither here nor there. Let's, let's just look at this. He's essentially saying that striking out at somebody, rebuking somebody in a sharp, harsh way, is not the norm. There can be a time and a place for it. Sure, let's acknowledge that. There can be a time and a place for it. The New Testament uses it uh, really only a few times, but it, we've, we've never seen anywhere in Paul's letters uh, to the churches, right, to Ephesians or Colossians or the Thessalonians, he never tells the churches to rebuke one another. He doesn't. What he does tell us is to encourage one another. What he does tell us is to admonish one another. He uses that word, which is kind of the positive end of correcting, right? Correcting towards a 
a goal of restoration, right? So rebuking may have a place in the context of, the, of church leadership that's gone awry, but in the context of the average person in the church, the, the typical person that we are with day to day, week to week, it, it's not meant to be used. In fact, what we're called to do instead is to encourage. And the word encouraged means to literally give courage. That's what the word, that's, that's why it's encourage. You're, you're, you're placing courage into somebody's life. So to encourage someone is to say, hey, you're, you're living wrongly here, but Jesus has a better way for you. And, and, and I know it's scary to follow Jesus sometimes, but we can do this. We can walk through it together. Think about the importance of having somebody with you when you're going into a scary situation. It's always better. It's always better to have somebody alongside of you because that, that's how God has wired us to be. We should have people in our lives to come alongside of us to encourage and to help us. And so he says in, in this context, we, we aren't to rebuke older men or younger men or older women or younger women, but we're to encourage all of these people, all these different groups, right? The multi-generational church a church should have multiple generations and, and everybody needs encouragement. Older men need encouragement. Older women need encouragement. Younger men and younger women do too. We all need each other to encourage and not rebuke. And it really does get down to treating each other like family, right? It's respect, it's honor, it's love, it's purity. All the things that we ought to, uh, we ought to see in a healthy family, a healthy biological family, those things should exist, right? Honor your father and mother is a commandment in the ten, of the Ten Commandments. Um, the idea of loving one another and living in purity with one another is clearly biblical. And so the whole heart of this is we as the church are family brought together by the blood of Christ that, that ought to treat each other as such. And so it's not about rebuke, it's about encouragement. So that's the big picture, okay? Now, we need to see that and kind of go, here's the general category. But, but how does Paul go on? Because this chapter's long, it's got a lot to say. Um, he's actually going to now turn to a specific uh, group of people within the church, actually three or four different groups of people within the church. And so let's look at it, verse 3. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. All right, let's stop there for just a moment. He, he actually spends most of this chapter talking about the widows and how the church should honor them and support them. Um, but but why, let, let's just step back a little bit and think about the context Paul's writing to and why he's honing in on widows. Like what, of all the groups that exist in the church, why this group. Well, in the world in which Paul lived, there was no other group that was more uh, down and out, disadvantaged, and, and really in trouble financially and otherwise than the widows. We have to understand that 2,000 years ago in, in Rome, women had very little, very few rights at all. And generally, their rights were extended to them through marriage or through their father. It was a patriarchal society. And so if a woman was married and loses her husband, um, there was no safety net. There was no social security. There was no pension that she could collect from, from his days of working. There was nothing 
uh, for her. They truly were the most economically disadvantaged people that there were. And so I think while we're going to get into the weeds here about widows and how we, we should care for them, I think that's true. We also need to step back and realize, you know, we live in a different time. And there's principles here that clearly overlap regardless, but the specifics may look a little different just because of how things uh, are today, right? The, the word is always true and it's always timely, but obviously there are times in culture that change. And so we can acknowledge that while also acknowledging the truth of the principles that are here. Okay, so verse three, he says, honor widows who are truly widows. Okay, so what does that mean? Um, here he explains it. Verse four, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All right, so widows who are truly widows uh, are, is defined as women who have lost their husband and have no children or grandchildren or any other living relative who can step in to help. Okay, let's keep going. Verse nine, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. All right, tons there, tons there. We could talk all day about all of this. Uh, but here's the point. Paul says that the church has a responsibility to care for people's financial needs under certain conditions. Condition number one, they don't have any family to care for them, and they're at an age where they can't get remarried to, and have a life together with a, with a new family. That's what he's saying, right? He says to, to the older women who are, who are just, you know, they, they've lost their husband, they've lived a long life, they did, maybe didn't have children, or maybe their children have abandoned them or abandoned the faith, and they're left all alone, well, then the church needs to step in and care for them. But if it's possible, that's not the ideal, right? The ideal is to have the biological family of these people take their responsibility seriously and care for their family. He says, he literally says that children should give a, uh, he should, let me see, let me find it, should um, make some return to their parents. 
for this is pleasing in the sight of God. It is primarily the responsibility of the children to care for their parents in their old age. That's, that's how God has desired it to be. And so he's saying that that's, that's the goal. Now that's not always a feasibility, right? There are, there are circumstances where that's not possible. And so you can't just leave people out in the cold to die and starve and be homeless because they, just because they don't have family to care for them. So the church can step in and meet those needs. But, but I think, so now obviously we're speaking about widows, but I think the broader principle here is how do we care for people in a financial hardship? And, and I think the answer to that question is the same. It is get, get the family, if it's possible, to care for their, their own. Don't let the church be burdened if it's possible. It's not always possible. Sometimes the church has to step in and help meet a need. And that's good, that's right, that's okay. But at the end of the day, it's not the ideal. God intends for, for the family unit to be intact and to actually care for their own. But the church can meet needs if it's necessary. And again, there's so much there, and I think some of it is cultural, some of it is uh, at the time that, that he's writing to. Obviously, we don't have the same kind of system here, right? We've, we've got things set up a little differently. And so I think the principle here is that if there's no one else to care, uh, then the church needs to care and step in and help those who are hurting. Okay, so that's category one. Caring for everybody means we encourage. We encourage each other in Jesus. We don't rebuke, we encourage. If at all possible, we don't rebuke. Secondly, how do we care for widows and those financially hurting? We, we allow the family to step in if that's uh, an option. And if it's not, then the church helps to meet those needs. Thirdly, here's the third category, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. All right, so this one's awkward for me because um, this is how to care for your pastor, okay? And that's, well, obviously I'm going to acknowledge the awkwardness in this, but it's, it's, it's there, so I'm going to talk about it. Um, the, the pastor here, let the elders who rule well, rule is a little bit of a strong word. It gives a little royalty edge to it. Think this word can be translated manage. This word can be translated lead. So think of that, right? So the, there are certain elders, not all the elders, but certain elders rule or lead the church and also labor at preaching and teaching. There seems to be a category here for elders who rule, elders who teach, elders who, who, who are there to give oversight. There's all kinds of things here, but there's a clear, there seems to be a clear division because he gives the specific instruction that those who manage well should be considered worthy of double honor. Double honor is defined as by everyone. No one disagrees with this. A financial compensation. That's what he's talking about. We know that that's what he's talking about because he quotes the Old Testament in verse 18 and says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So he, we know that he's talking about financial uh, care for the pastors, particularly the pastors who work in the church to labor at preaching and teaching. That's, that's what he's saying. And they, they, this 
this is a position that should have some compensation for the labor. And so um, that's awkward, but I mean, hey, it is what it is. I do receive a salary from this church. This church cares really well for me. No complaints. I'm not going to ask for a raise here, okay? So there we go. Uh, really do love this church and thank you for, for all of that. But here's, here's what he says. He's saying that this is what one of the tangible ways you can care for your pastor. The, the people who help to, who labor at preaching and teaching, who take the time throughout the week to put something together to feed you, to give you the gospel, to help you grow in your faith. Um, that, that isn't something that can just be whipped up in a minute. It does take a lot of work. And so he's saying, you should, just like the scripture says, you should not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's a weird analogy. He quotes from Deuteronomy. Uh, I think it's 24 or 25. I uh, can't see my cross references very well, but he's quoting from Deuteronomy there. And the point is this, right? You have an ox working a field and the scriptures say in the Old Testament that you shouldn't put a muzzle on that ox while he treads out the grain. Why? Because that poor ox is working hard for you and you should let the thing eat a little bit while he's doing his work. That's what, it, that's what it's saying. Like it's, it's not about pastoral ministry at all, except Paul calls pastors ox. I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult, but it's probably accurate regardless. So, so don't muzzle your ox when he treads out the grain. And he says the laborer deserves his wages. And that's a quotation from, from Jesus, uh, actually. So, so there's the first way that you can care for your pastors. And you do. You do very well there. Thank you for that. Okay? We don't need to browbeat on that issue. Um, but, there's an, but as we transition from here, there's another way we can care for our leaders. Look at verse 19. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is interesting. Um, yeah, this, is really, this, this one's going to take a little time probably to unpack. But here's what he's essentially saying. He, he's saying, do not bring an accusation of particularly, what he's talking about is, an, is a disqualifying accusation against an elder unless there are the witnesses to corroborate this accusation. In other words, what he's asking for is due diligence in regards to accusing an elder, a, a pastor, uh, of, of something immoral or something disqualifying. We know that pastors have a set of qualifications that need to be met in their life to have the position. And if those qualifications are consistently uh, met with, um, unmet and unrepented of and undealt with, that man is not qualified for the ministry. But here's the issue. I think this is what, why Paul goes here. Why does Paul bring this up? Um, well, one, his, um, he's just established that pastors receive their wages through the ministry that they're, per, that they're doing within the church. And so if an, if an accusation is made without the due diligence of, of, hey, this is real, this has actually happened, and this is disqualifying, if those accusations are just made willy-nilly, that pastor can lose his position, which doesn't just mean he's no longer the pastor. It also means that his family starves because now he doesn't have a job. Now, that's not to say that you should never make an accusation against a pastor. You actually should if there's a need to do that. 
Um, that's why he says you shouldn't do this except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There, he's not saying pastors are bulletproof. He's not saying pastors are not, uh, are not needing to be confronted. He's not saying that at all. In fact, the next verse is going to show us that that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is, is don't be hasty in making accusations that are unfounded because you can ruin a guy's life if these things aren't coming out to be true. What have you done? You haven't loved that man very well if, if you, what you accuse him of isn't actually true. And so the way to verify that it's true is to have multiple people representing the same issue and seeing it together. Um, I was reminded of this. There was a, there's a famous pastor. He's, he's crashed and burned now, sadly. Um, but when he was removed from his position, he was a megachurch pastor. He was removed from his position after, so huge church, big staff. 14 of the, of the staff members of his church wrote an open letter to the, to the elder board and with detailed information about how he had disqualified himself. 14 people signing this letter saying this is what's happened. And they did an investigation. They determined that these things were true and he was removed rightly. That, that needs to happen, but it, but it needs to happen with due diligence. And, and that's the key, right? That's, it's about how to love the, your pastor. Um, and so, so go on, let's go on to read verse 20. He says, so as for those who persist in sin, those referring to your, your elders who persist in sin, that's who he's talking about. Elders and pastors are sinners. We need to repent of our sins just like everyone else. But if we consistently persist in our sin, refuse to repent of our sin, here's what the church must do. Here's what the other elders that are placed in that church ought to do. Rebuke them. There's that word. Rebuke them. Rebuke that elder in the presence of all so that the rest, meaning the, the church, stands in fear. Fear of the Lord. Honor, respect of God. We, we don't just let pastors steamroll over people. We don't, we don't just have to put up with a pastor who's out for his own agenda. We don't have to do that. We shouldn't do that. But we need to be mindful of how to do this with, with the appropriate care. And so if there, hopefully you never get to this point, right? Because hopefully if a pastor is confronted with a sin in his life, he repents, and then he's restored and all the things can, can move forward just like any other Christian. But if there's a persistence in sin, there needs to be a rebuke publicly before the congregation. And then the rest of the congregation will see the Lord in, in these things. Paul says in verse 21 that in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and in the end of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. So this is the other side of it. Is he, sa- he uses two words here, prejudging and partiality. And both of these things are the, the wrong way to approach a, a situation with your leaders, with your pastors who have fallen into sin. We tend to go towards one or the other. We either prejudge, meaning that guy is just, He's filthy, he's rotten, he's the worst person, and he's guilty. Or we show partiality. He's the nicest guy I've ever met. I love him. He can't do anything wrong. Uh, So we've seen this a lot in our culture right now, right? 
Think about, um, I, I don't like to bring pol- political issues into the pulpit, but let me just use this as an example because it, f- it was a famous thing, right? The Kyle Rittenhouse situation. I'm not making any, anything political here. I'm just simply saying, if you watch the coverage of that and the, and the way people spoke about that, you had prejudging and partiality on full display, depending on your political leanings. It was wild, actually. And I feel like that's ha- that, that is not a new problem, clearly not, because Paul says that this is a human problem. We all show partiality or prejudgment, but, we, but we're not to do that. Not as Christians. As Christians, we are to see clear-headed the facts, the reality. We don't just assume this person is a perfect little angel regardless of what they're doing and blind to the problems. And we also don't just see them as a, as a demon who is just a horrible, horrible person and can't have any redeeming value. That is, both of those extremes are wrong. And obviously Paul's not talking about this in the context of, of a court case. He's talking about it in the context of the church. And the church is when you have a pastor who's, who's in trouble spiritually because he's not repenting of his sin. We need to recognize with clear head, clear eyes, what is, what is really happening here. And we need to take it to the Lord for wisdom. All right, 22. He says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, the first half of that, I just want to make mention of this. I think Paul is saying this as a way to prevent, or at least try to get in front of, uh, everything he's just been talking about with pastors disqualifying themselves. Oftentimes, people are put into leadership roles and they're not ready to do it. Maybe their gifting outweighs their maturity. And so Paul says, don't be hasty in laying on of hands. Now, laying on of hands means calling someone into the ministry. Don't be hasty in that. In other words, don't rush through this just because you want to. Or you got to take the time to assess a person's life as much as possible. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, that's the result, or that's what results in a, in a catastrophic failure down the road, is that somebody's giftedness can outweigh their maturity and their love for Jesus. And so eventually it all comes crumbling down. The way to get in front of that is to go, well, let's take some time to think about this. And, and not just put somebody forward without thought. Okay, next he says, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not, cannot remain hidden. All right, so here's what Paul's saying now to Timothy. He's speaking directly to Timothy on a personal level, and he's saying to him, you also need to care for yourself. So you need to care for everybody. You need to care for widows in particular. You need to care for elders that work within the church in laboring and preaching and teaching. And then he says you also need to care for yourself. He says, Take, keep yourself pure, meaning keep yourself from sin. 
continue to repent, continue to, to walk towards Jesus. So he says, care for yourself spiritually there. And then verse 23, he gives this little parentheses of also care for yourself physically. And it's kind of interesting, the instruction he gives, don't just drink water, but drink a little wine. Hey, there you go. That's somebody's life verse. Um, uh, just kidding. For the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. So again, wine was seen back in those days as kind of medicinal. A little wine is the key phrase there, little. Okay. And so there, there, there are some commentators who think that maybe Timothy was being tempted towards um, kind of like appearances and not wanting to look like a sinner. And so he didn't drink wine because he didn't want to appear like he, he was inappropriate. And Paul goes, that's dumb. Drink some wine if you need it for your stomach. Take care of yourself. Don't worry about what other people think. And that's, I think, the point of verse 24 and 25 is that the sins of some people are, are conspicuous, but they'll eventually be come out. They'll come out. And, and you know what? The righteousness, the good works of others are also conspicuous, um, but, but they won't remain hidden. Okay, last section here, verse uh, six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. He says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Okay, this is interesting. So we've transitioned from, okay, generally, how do we care for everybody? Encourage, not rebuke. How do we care for widows? Provide financial help if, if it's necessary, only if it's necessary. Uh, care for your pastors through financial provision and through due diligence in regards to accusations. And then care for yourself spiritually and physically. Lastly, this is interesting. He says, here's how you care for the people you work for. That's weird, right? Because we think it's the responsibility of, a, of the boss to care for us. And that's true to some degree because Paul does write in the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians. He does write to those who are in positions of authority how to treat those who are under them. That's true. Uh, there's a place for that. It's a, but it's a give and take in the church. So even though, so now here Paul's speaking directly to people who have bosses, who have uh, masters or, or you're under a yoke, right? You're under somebody's uh, authority. How do you how do you handle that? And he says, clearly, as worthy of all honor. Why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. If you are dishonoring your employer, you are, you are showing a bad witness about Jesus. And then he doubles down in verse 2 and says, so those who have believing master. So if you have a, a boss that's a Christian, now not all you do, but if you do, then all the more, he says, you must not be disrespectful. Why? On the grounds that they're brothers. They're your brother in Christ or your sister if you work for, for her, right? You have this relational thing that's beyond just the, the, the employee-employer dynamic. You have 
the, the church family dynamic too. And so you must serve all the better. You should always serve to your best, right? But all the more if they're fellow believers, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So that's interesting. How do you care for the person you work for? Work hard? Honor them? Respect them? You may not like them. You may not agree with them. But this is, this is what you're called to as a believer because Jesus um, submitted himself to the Father, right? And so we are called to put ourselves under authority as well. Jesus clearly teaches that. He, is, he was a man under authority. And the authority of the Father sending him into the world. And there's, that, that is what motivates us to see the person we work for, not as an enemy, but as someone we can serve well. And if that person happens to be a Christian, then all the more, because we're brothers and sisters. All right, well, let's tie this all together. I, I think getting back to the, to the top of this, what is the fundamental issue? The church needs to meet people's needs as much as they're able to, but the primary need that everybody has is the need to be encouraged. The need to be, to, to be given courage to walk with Jesus. And I think we see this, uh, actually, if we turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, um, we see Paul kind of talk through these things in, in a more concise way, in a less specific way. But 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, I think we'll start in verse 9. Is that, yep, in verse 9. He, here's, what, here's what Paul writes to the Thessalonians. Different church, but still applies very similar to what he's been talking about. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, that meaning alive or dead, that's what he means there, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The Thessalonians seemed to be a pretty good church, actually, for the most part. Had some confusion about the end times and what, what that meant, but they were a pretty loving group of people. Um, and here's what Paul says. Paul says in verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. God has saved us by dying for us through Jesus Christ. So that whether we're alive here or whether we die here, we're going to live with him. We're going to be with him. There's no, there's no lose in the Christian life. There's only a win. Therefore, we should encourage each other and build each other up. As we keep reading, he says this, we ask you, verse 12, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So that's a reference to how you should treat your pastors. That's who he's talking about, your leaders, your elders. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Then this is the key verse, 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. The idle is another word for like the lazy, just people who don't want to do anything. Admonish them. Encourage the faint-hearted. 
So that gets back to the idea of courage, giving someone courage because they're faint-hearted. They're, they're about to give up. Encourage them. Help the weak. That could be weak spiritually. That could be weak financially, weak spirit, uh, f- physically, right? But help them. Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. That's the key. We have to be patient with each other. Because if we're faint-hearted, if we're weak, if we're discouraged, if we're idle, it could be really easy for us to get upset about that, frustrated with each other. We need to be patient with, e- with everyone. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We're, we're called to care for each other. That's what the church is meant to do. And there's all kinds of scenarios in which we get to do that. But the fundamental principle is encourage, build each other up, help, serve, and grow together. That, that should be what the church gives its heart to. That's what you and I should be giving our lives to with one another and with everyone, ultimately, but especially with those who are in our church. All right, let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for the encouragement and the, the word of uh, reminder here that we needed to hear, that we are called to love, encourage, and help those around us. And we can all do that through varying degrees, and we pray that you would help us to understand where to step into those things and and when it's appropriate. Uh, But God, we pray that you would continue to build in this church a, a heart for each other, a love for one another that will naturally overflow and lead into care for each other. We pray that you would do that work by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.